0: The supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, does AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costello.
1: Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. And uh, it is just Tim Weisberg here. I am the only one here tonight. <laughs> Because uh, both Matt Costa and Matt Moniz are out, so no science advisor, no silent assassin. All you're getting is just me. And uh, in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by our content director, Christopher Balzano. He's going to join me to talk about some things that we have coming up, uh, including our Bridgewater Triangle show, which will be happening on August 27th. And uh, we'll also talk about some other things. we got a new text line we're going to tell you about. And then later on in the show, at the bottom of this hour, and probably we're going to go till 1 a.m., because... We can. We're going to talk with our Gary Patterson, one of our favorite guests of all time, who will be joining us to talk about Amy Winehouse and the 27 Curse. Amy Winehouse, of course, was found uh, found dead in her apartment in London today at the age of 27. Did she fall victim to the 27 Curse? We'll find out about all that and more with Gary Patterson coming up at the bottom of the hour. But for right now, let's get into things with Chris Balzano. I'm going to bring him up here. Let's see if I can do this right. Alright, Chris, are you there?
0: I am there, Tim. Or here, I should say.
1: Excellent. And, uh, and as far as you know, you know, we're broadcasting, uh, <laughs> we're broadcasting.
0: Excellent. So, I'll, uh, I'll make sure not to make a fool of myself. How
1: are we tonight? Uh, I guess we're yeah, doing so. as, as well as can be expected. Uh, I think I did everything that I'm supposed to do so far, and I don't think I've screwed anything up royally.
0: Well, you deal with what you have to deal with. You know, my brother, you're bringing it out there. Army marches
1: on. And thank you for all your help, not only in putting together this show, uh, this particular episode, but also in helping out with calling people. Because originally we were supposed to have uh, a different guest with us tonight. We were supposed to have uh, Betsy Bolega, and she was supposed to join us to talk about her new book, uh, which is entitled uh, Being Mystic, In Touch With God. And uh, we will reschedule her, and she was going to do readings, too. So it would have been an easy night for me uh, if that had been the case, because all I'd have to do is answer the phones.
0: And you know what, she was really great, and she has a really hectic schedule with uh, touring for that book, so we're hoping to get her sometime in September.
1: Excellent. Now, when we first were talking, uh, well, texting earlier this afternoon, uh, and you heard about the Amy Winehouse death, uh, did you, were your thoughts like mine? Did they immediately go to, to Gary Patterson and the 27 curse? Oh, they so did. I mean,
0: as soon as you, then of course, in your text, you said 27. And I that's the first very first thing that I thought of and I, I kinda of chuckled to myself and my wife kinda of rolled her eyes and and then when you said uh, you know, I think half jokingly should we get Patterson on? Um, I was like, Okay, whatever, dude, I'll call him and uh and anyone who knows me knows that he is kind of if I have him out rushmore, he's one of the faces. So it was a little intimidating calling him. He was the most amazing guy and he said, I have been inundated with calls today and emails, everyone knows about it. It's kind of this whole twenty seven thing which which he actually He's the first person to draw those connections. He probably won't say it himself, but he's the first person to draw those connections. Uh, it's become something that even extends beyond him now. So uh, it's going to be an excellent second half of the show.
1: Well, and uh, I have to say, you know, he's, he's my favorite guest of all time, uh, present company excluded. But, you know, the, the chance to be able to talk to him at any point is happy. It's been a while since we've had him on. So I'm sorry that it took the death of Amy Winehouse to get him back on the program.
0: Yeah, you know, and and he said, "Oh, yeah, I remember that show." And and uh, and he's going on coast to coast later on tonight. And he and so I was like, "Oh," and he went, "No, that's no, I'll totally do your show." So he is he is hauled up in a hotel room um, in on the east coast of Florida tonight, and uh, he's excited to talk to us tonight, which is which is really cool. Him and I actually talked for probably about an hour and a half today, and and uh, it's like it was amazing for me because he said. Like wow, I like you. You know, we, you and I think alike, and it, it was kind of freaky for me. So I'm, I'm still on cloud nine. If I get a little rambly.
1: oh, that, that's fine. Now uh, we also want to talk about something that's coming up here on the program, uh, August 27th. We're going to do our annual Bridgewater Triangle show, and I'm excited because we're taking a different approach with it this year, including making it interactive with our website, spookysouthcoast.com. Yeah,
0: and you know, it, it, a it feels as if, and when we've done.
1: To get involved. My bad. Hang on. Okay, there we go. But not no, in no, that.
0: Get involved. This is the year we want more people to get involved. Um, you know, we've done uh, five of these shows. They're always the biggest show of the year. Um, they're always something that brings together the community that we have. Uh, we've gotten a lot of listeners because of it and a lot of people who want to get involved in it. So we decided this year we were going to take it as far as our intellects and our ability to control technology uh, takes us. So, um, uh you know, do you want me to just get into some of the things that we're doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. So if you go to the website now, uh, SpookySouthCoast.com, you'll see we have something up there called the Triangle Project. And that's basically, um, you know, I, I really thought that this being also the flagship uh, radio show of all things Bridgewater Triangle, you know, this should this this website should really be the destination for information about it. So when you first click on uh, to the Triangle Project, you're going to find... Uh, not only all the archived episodes of, of our Bridgewater Triangle shows, uh, I also posted up there, uh, Adam Casu, Cashew, Aaron Casu's, uh, um, a video inside the Bridgewater Triangle, um, as well as some really great books about the Bridgewater Triangle, um, both from, you know, my hand and yours, uh, and then, um, actually the, the John Horgan produced, uh, Ghost of the Bridgewater Triangle, all of which are for sale. But then what I did was I took some of the places that we've been. So these are not just famously haunted triangle things, but places that we've been on those uh, episodes. And I'm asking for people to send more because I'm sure in my rush to do it. it. it You know, I've left some stuff out. And we're going to set up each of those sites with its own page. Um, and that's going to contain, you know, a little background information about, about these different locations as well as evidence we've gotten. So, for example, you know, if you click on the Antoine Rock, you're going to get the history of Antoine Rock. We're going to get some pictures, and hopefully we're going to get some of our listeners, Luann, I'm talking to you, uh, just to submit evidence that they've gotten, not only during the investigations that we've done on air, but also their own investigations. So we really would like this to become kind of like uh, the listeners of Spooky South Coast place to um, present and to give new evidence. And of course, when we get new evidence in as the year goes through, we'll kind of send it out to people so that they can kind of look at it and evaluate it, but this this is going to be um, the place to go for anyone who wants to. If you're writing a paper about the Bridgewater Triangle, you're going to want to go to Spooky South Coast and have everything you need.
1: Well, uh, Right,
0: uh, right I like now, the... if you click, it's a little self-serving because right now, if you click, it just links to stuff within Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, but that's only because I didn't have time to set up all of the pages that are going to be connected to it yet.
1: I like your thinking though, when we were discussing this uh, originally you you were you know talking about using the technology that we have available to us uh, in as many ways as possible, uh, and that included you know trying to get video out there in the field. I think the par- problem with that is although we have spooky TV which of course we 're not broadcasting on tonight because uh, you know breaking down the fourth wall here, I had to use my laptop that I usually use for that for the podcast, which I deemed more important tonight so uh, but anyway. Uh, you know, we, we do have all this technology available to us. Although it hasn't quite caught up to our needs for doing this, I think it's entirely plausible that we could set up some kind of account. Uh, you know, give out the password maybe to our spooky TV, or maybe set up a separate spooky TV account uh, so that people who have the ability to broadcast from their cell phones can do so, uh, because uh, Android phones and iPhones can can do that um, with with our software with our UStream service. Uh, And also what we could do is we could set up a Twitter account where people could tweet from out in the field, wherever they are, uh, you know, at various moments, you know, just say what's going on. You know, of course, they're limited to 140 characters or less, but it it might be a good interactive way to get the listenership involved and to make it be more of an interactive thing beyond just being able to call into the radio station and have us relay questions to the teams out in the field.
0: Right, and the the other thing we're going to try to do with with my – limited bandwidth here is we're going to try to update those evidence pages as people go so if uh, if you're out in the field and in your uh at the sonic ledge and you take a picture and you can upload that picture um so the spooky crew um, you know will work to get it up in 5 minutes so that people can actually go in and see like live updates of what people what people are doing out in the field we're going to try it the best we can and and, uh, and even if it doesn't succeed it's still going to be a really cool attempt and it's going to be really uh unifying
1: well, and that's one of the things that's, that's tough doing this every year. We do it annually, and part of the problem with that is you have to try to find a way to make it fresh each year and to always find a way to, um, I, I don't want to say make it, make it better, but to find a way to make it so that it's more interactive, uh, to make it more interesting for the audience that keeps coming back year after year. Well, you know, I mean, the thing
0: about the Bridgewater Triangle is that, and, and looking at the Bridgewater Triangle, that it has evolved. You know, our understanding of it has evolved. You know, if you take from, you know, the late 70s when Coleman was talking about it, up through Pittman, um, and then my kind of extending of it, and then you look at, you know, groups like uh, the Bridgewater Triangle with, with Manny and Kristen and what they're doing, uh, really delving deep into the, um, into the historical side of it, and then you look at other people who are approaching it from a psychic side. It, the, the triangle itself an understanding of it, as well as the mythology of it, as well as the kind of evolving of the folklore behind the Bridgewater Triangle, um, it's constantly moving, and so if you know we're documenting that movement, so we have to change every year. You know, I think a really good example of that is, is the very first one. I believe we sent a group out to Stonehill College, and we were talking about this in the chat room um, before the show was on. Um, and they got some really interesting evidence. But in my research post that, we discovered that all of these hauntings that people are documenting and talking about, um, none of them are true. All of them are folklore, you know, and yet there were still some other, you know, weird and, and, and haunted things that have gone on there that, that we talked about as well. But it's one of those things where you take an investigation like Stonehill, which went from legends to evidence back to legend. Then you have to look at the evidence and say, well, what exactly did we get then? Um, and so it really, you know, t- every year tells kind of a different story. And, and for this year we've kind of chosen the the um, the, the category or kind of like the the big title of, you know, the March of Anawan, because it's going to be um, in celebration with the anniversary of that. And so we're really kind of focusing on hopefully the Native American aspects of it, but also um, this traveling and this kind of hauntings moving and evolving and moving from one place to another and, and kind of, you know, the triangle and the idea of the triangle kind of going along with that.
1: Now, you had mentioned before that we do need investigators to get involved with this. Uh, do we have an idea? I know we, we were talking the other day, kind of kicking around the number of, you know, possibly having as many as 20 teams because that many people have come in contact with me over the last year and said that they want to get involved with it. Uh, I mean, is there a, a set number that you think that would be too many, or, or do you think we should kind of just take any and all comers for this?
0: Well, here's what I'm going to say, and, you know, once again, we have to play around with this technology-wise, but... You know, there's no reason why you can't go out next
1: weekend. Hi, I'm Um, Dennis Miller.
2: This year is the 10th anniversary of 9-11. You can join forces with my friends at USA Cares and the Siller Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Folks in 20 cities have already signed up to organize a 5K run across the country to honor the 10th anniversary of 9/11, the heroes who responded to the attack, and the military who continue to respond to this day. Now you've heard me talk before. I attended this last year. It was cool cool event. Steven Siller is the young man who put his gear on and ran towards even, no, the buildings to when it hit the fan through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and like 340.
1: 340- That'll work. <laughs> yeah. I know.
0: never has Dennis Miller been so cut off except for during Monday Night Football. All right. (laughs) So uh, um, we were talking about getting involved in in groups that want to be involved. um, Nothing's to stop them from getting evidence and being part of the show in kind of a periphery kind of way by um, doing their investigations before the actual show, and that way whether we can kind of put them up on a live feed or put them up in a YouTube account that we refer the audience to or kind of link to and feed to and build those pages up, um, you know, I think that we can handle as many people uh, as who want to be involved in this year because the way that we're doing it, it's not going to just be a one-night event.
1: Well, and I think uh, that the more groups that we can get involved, you know, the more ground that we can cover and also the more interesting it will be uh, for the listeners who you know, might be tuning in for the first time, they, it might be overwhelming <laughs> because you're going to be getting all this information all at once. Uh, uh, so we definitely need to make it a kind of a multi-night event.
0: Right, and it's again. You know, it's a good thing about it is it's going to be the show and and the march of Anawan, and then you know when the show's over or the next day, or whatever, you you come across something that you really enjoy, you'll be able to go back to that page of that site and kind of get a little more information on it and kind of start your own uh, search more in depth about it. But
1: the, the, the latest big thing news, is weather and sports hold on now. and stimulating
0: talk. AM 1420 WBSM.
1: I have no idea why these keep going off. I, thought. I have
0: never had to deal with this kind of unprofessionalism. Hey, you know? I'm, not, I'm
1: not a, I'm a professional <laughs> host. I'm not a professional engineer here. I'm not a board op.
0: Um, but, you know, keep in mind that when I say we're putting the call out there, we are legitimately putting the call out there um, because, you know, we get approached all year long about people who want to become involved that we lose track of the people that want to do it. Um, so this is really not that you're not going to be involved if you don't email us, but we're really looking for people who want to be involved and who want to do this to contact us at spookycrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. dot com. Email us so that we know where you want to go, um, who you are, where you want to go. Uh, even our regulars, if you, if we can get all our ducks in a row, it's going to be it's going to be make for a much better event.
1: And I can actually. Uh... You one better, Chris, because not only can they email us at Crew at spooky south they can now call us because we now have a new boo line here on spooky south coast. And that doesn't mean that you can call us up and, and you know, jeer us, you know, boo, you guys are terrible, but it's the boo line because it's 508 444 boo one. 508-444-2661. What that is, is that's a voicemail line that you can get a hold of us all week long. Uh, you can either get a hold of us for reasons of needing to contact us, or you can leave some comments about the show, leave some questions. Uh, we can also take some of that audio and we can put it together for the show if need be. Uh, so, you know, if you ever have anything that you want to say on the air and you don't get a chance to call in live, uh, you can leave a message there at that number and do that. And the interesting thing about this boo line is you can also text us on it as well during the program. So when the show is going on, if you're out in your car and you don't have access to your email uh, and you don't want to call in but you have a question or you want to get involved with the discussion in some way, you can text us at any time. I'll give those numbers again if you want to get out a pen, write them down, add them to your cell phone. It's uh, 508-444-BOO1, uh, 508-444-2661. So uh, if you want to leave a message for us, let us know that you want to get involved with the Bridgewater Triangle Investigation Show, or if you want to leave any kind of message for the show, and also if you want to send us texts during the program. Again, uh, sorry, 508-444-BOO-1, 508-444-2661. So there and hopefully
0: we'll be adding something on the website to that as well. So Yes. Uh, you know, I just
1: came up with it the other day. I finally got it working. Uh, I've been trying to find a, a text to the show you know, a way to do that for, for quite some time where it wouldn't cost a fortune because there's plenty of services that will do it. It just costs $500 a month. So I was trying to find a way, and uh, this is the way, and it just so happened that in addition to being able to text the program, they could also leave voicemail messages all the time. So it worked out well. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we, we've tried this in the past. Uh, we've gotten a few messages here and there, but, of course, the show has grown by leaps and bounds since that point, and there's always reasons for people to get in touch with us now, usually because we owe them money.
0: Or they have to complain about
1: something I've said. Yeah, well, I don't get—I don't get too many complaints about that. Usually, those just come in mysterious blog posts or message board posts with anonymous names attached to them. <clears throat> Monies. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that uh, when we do this this year and we try to make it more interactive, uh, I think what you'll see is maybe you know you'll start to see average people, not paranormal investigators, but just. Uh, You know, common folks trying to get involved, the lay lay people in the area uh, wanting to get involved. And, you know, I I think they'll probably go to these locations to watch the investigators work, not obviously to contaminate the investigation, stay far enough back. But, you know, you might start to see it become more of an interactive thing across the audience. And that can only help out because if you can have one night where you're covering all the bases of one particular, you know, paranormal angle, uh, I think it makes it a lot harder for them to hide. If you agree.
0: I Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, but I, I think that, you know, it's um, there are no bystanders in the paranormal these days. You know, everyone seems to have an opinion one way or the other. So to get people actually out there maybe observing and to, you know, kind of foster this understanding. And, of course, Spooky South Coast has always linked history and understanding history and understanding where we come from with our paranormal investigations. And so once again, it becomes an opportunity for people to go out there and maybe not only see these sites, but learn a little bit. Because all the investigators we send out there, they know the back and backwards and forwards of those sites. They know the history of them. They know the, the legends behind them, but they also know what other people have gotten, uh, other investigators who have gone out. Uh, they know the connections because, because we, you know, it usually ends up being very intelligent and very, um, experienced people that to go out and help us with it. And so that can only benefit people who kind of want to be along and enjoy that.
1: Well, I'm excited. I know that there's so many groups that want to take part. I'm hoping that as we get closer uh, to the event, the August 27th uh, date, you know, we won't have this hot, hot weather like we've had uh, the past few days. I mean, I know it's you know we're approaching that'll be Labor Day weekend, I think. Uh, so you know, you, you always have the risk of there being you know that tough weather, but I, I don't want to be sending teams out you know on a on a 95 degree night like we've had here the last few nights. You know, and I want
0: to I want to make sure that everyone knows that I will be broadcasting from florida so i will not be there this year this is the first year i'm going to miss and i'm a little torn up about it
1: well i mean there's still time if people want to go to spooky click the donate button and uh you know send enough money we could, we could fly you up for the weekend
2: i'd be more than happy to do it
1: all right and we, we know we could always put you up on uh on monies's couch so just bring trash bags to lay on
0: my PayPal account is alosa1066. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they can just go to the Spooky South Coast one. You know, we'll we'll just surprise you with a the ticket.
0: There you go. You know, although you, although you know what, like, you know, there's there we we posted stuff up there about you know resources and stuff like that. Don't just like donate money. Like, buy one of those books or buy one of those CDs and or do something like that and, and kind of you know get information as well as send Bolzano to Mass.
1: There you go. All right, well, we're going to take a break here. Uh, we're going to try and take a break anyway. And during that break, we'll try to get our Gary Patterson on the line. And when we come back, we'll talk about the 27 curse. Is Amy Winehouse the latest victim? Uh, can we put her in the uh, lofty company of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and the rest of the 27 curse crew? Uh, I don't know about that, but we can talk about all that and more with Gary Patterson coming up in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Wiseberg here. Chris Balzano sitting in uh, for all the way from Florida. Uh, he is uh, guest hosting with us tonight because Matt and Matt are not here with us uh, for a variety of reasons that we won't get into on the air. But we do have joining us on the line uh, our Gary Patterson. He's a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll. As a published author, Patterson's works portray many fascinating events that help shape musical history from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll standing legends. Gary is the author of The Walrus Was Paul, Hellhounds on Their Trail, and Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. Gary also gives lectures on college campuses concerning myths and little-known legends of popular music. He's also the host of Pop Odyssey Radio online at popodysseyradio.com, and his personal website is www.rgarypatterson.com. And he joins us right now uh, on Spooky South Coast, one of our favorite guests. Good evening, Gary. Thanks for joining us.
2: done this before i believe
1: yes we have uh, on a few occasions and uh, it's still one of our most downloaded shows one of our most listened to and most commented on shows people just love talking about this stuff
2: well i enjoy it myself it's a, it's a good topic it's interesting i will say that
1: well it seems that uh, you know we're, we're brought together here today under uh, under not so pleasant circumstances because of the death of amy winehouse uh, and I think anybody that followed her career and knew a little bit about her knew that this was not a surprise. This was kind of something that people saw coming a long time ago.
2: Well, you know, sadly, it was like you're, white, you're waiting for a car crash to happen. And, you know, it's, it's just going to be a matter of time. I think that her parents felt that way. And, I mean, it's really sad because, I mean, she was very, very talented. And to die as young as she did with a lot of great promise I mean, I believe she was the only rock star who was 27 who had ever won five Grammys for an album, you know, like Back to Black. So, you know, she was very successful with it. She had her own demons. I know that on her last tour, she had to cancel, which was a few months ago, and she was booed off the stage, and she looked like she was getting back to her personal demons. I know her father was concerned, and it's, it's just very tragic for anyone to die, especially when someone dies that young, and the promise won't be as realized as she should
1: be. Well, I, I noticed that there was a YouTube video posted up of her joining her goddaughter on stage uh, earlier this yeah. week, I think. And, I mean, she just looks the way that she's always looked uh, and I, I thought for a long time that maybe some of that was by design, that some of that was kind of her gimmick. Uh, but the more stories that I heard about her, the more it just seemed like she was destined to to fall victim to these demons, as you mentioned.
2: Yeah, well, I I, I agree with you. I know that I did a show with E! called Doomed to Die, 13 Curses. And one of the 13 curses has to do with rock stars dying at the age of 27. Imagine that. And when we did the show at the end of that segment, they brought up two artists who were approaching 27 and may be the next members of the club. And of course, (laughs) well, one was Britney Spears, but it looks like she's got her act together. And then the second was Amy Winehouse. So, I mean, they had predicted it. I know there was a website that probably very not in good taste that actually had a contest to win a win something if you could predict when Amy Winehouse would die. And, I mean, that's to me that's sort of extremely ghoulish. But, you know, they've been doing the same thing on a death watch on Keith Richards. You know, Keith's talking. Still- Still alive and well. I think that a lot of rock stars are 10 foot tall or think they're 10 foot tall and bulletproof and have uh, Keith Richards' metabolism, but that's not always the case. And, you know, it's always a tragedy. Well...
1: When you look at some of these you know rock stars that people are assuming are uh, you know have one foot in the grave, it, you know it 's because of that lifestyle it 's that that sex drugs and rock and roll lifestyle that they think are going to do them in, but maybe some people a la Keith Richards, just have a higher constitution than the rest of us do
2: well, I think Grant Parsons would agree with that now you know because there 's a lot of people who knew that Grant Parsons was hanging out with the stones and sort of adopted the lifestyle i mean it's good that Keith Richards is still with us and I mean he's a brilliant musician but when you think of that I mean and you, and if you see Keith I mean he doesn't he's sort of ravaged face and from his own abuse I guess but you know I mean the music's still there for him it's amazing that in his late 60s I guess he's still out rocking and rolling in arenas and the Stones still have music so I mean that's great and you know like I said it's always a tragedy but then again it's nice that maybe they can come to their senses because when you're on the road you really believe nothing can hurt you mm-hmm. and when you're young I guess that's the one thing at 27 you're sort of leaving your youth and you're you're crossing over to that one side where you know you're going to have to really make your career by this time because you know the recording industry's not very well at 27 if you've not had an album it's kind of hard to appeal to 12 and 13 year old girls who actually buy the product so I guess it's a t- a time when you would have to reflect. I know that, you know, if you take a look at numerology 2 plus 7 is 9, and the number 9 is the only single digit multiplied by another single digit that will always equal 9. It's a number of completeness. Uh, you know, there's 27 cycles they talk about in an astrology and that at the end of 27 it's supposed to be the first 27 is supposed to be a great learning stage in your life or a form of completeness and I remember doing a thing with Coast to Coast with uh, The Doors, and they were talking about uh, reincarnation with a night cycle, you know, and all this. So there has to be some spiritual and, uh, new, you know, I, I guess you would say some occult leanings to it or whatever. But, you know, whatever reason it is, you know, 27 is a very unlucky age for rock stars. And, and well, unfortunately today we have a new, a new member of the club.
1: Well, and do you think that Amy Winehouse is, uh, you know, officially a member of that club, or is it just a coincidence? I mean, it seems like she's on that same destructive path that a lot of these people that we put in the Twenty Seven Curse Club uh, were on. I mean, it, it's, although the music's different, uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels to a Kurt Cobain, to a Jimi Hendrix, to Janis Joplin.
2: Well, you know, a lot of times I think people say, well, you know, to be mentioned as the club, you would really have to be a major, major artist. You know, to somebody who could stand up to Brian Jones or a Kurt Cobain or a Jimi Hendrix or a Joplin or a Jim Morrison, you know that when they died, they had already been greatly successful. But you know, not every member of the club died of a drug overdose. You know, some accidental uh, or suicide from depression. Uh, You know, all of these things. You know, it's not basically just a lifestyle. I know that when I wrote. Hellhounds on Their Trail, which is the very first mention of the club in literature, I know that I could have said, well, you know, what would be the odds that rock stars would die before the age of 30? So rock stars die before 30 is a great number. But if you take the number 27, and what I did, I excluded anyone who was in their 27th year. If I had added the 27th year, I could have had Otis Redding and Graham Parsons and a number of other artists, but I stayed true to twenty-seven. And, you know, when I was on coast, I had, with Ian Punnett, a good friend of mine, we got a call from, uh, well, it was a, a person who was working on his Ph.D. in statistics, and he said, just for fun, that he took all the rock stars' ages when they died, which would start with uh, Richie Valens, who was only 17, and he put him in his computer, and it spit out the results, as that the number one age for the death of rock stars was 27, And there were 42 rock stars who died at that age. So now we can add 43. And I guess another thing I look at, when I talk about rock stars dying at 43, or 27, excuse me, the 43 rock stars, the one thing I don't do is, is I don't take side people who were in a band who played maracas or whatever, because then the list would be very overwhelming. I try to keep it to artists who actually made significant changes in the genre. And, you know, if you think about it, 43, you know, 43 people who died at the age of 27 in rock and roll, it's the number one age for the death of rock stars of all ages. So whatever there is, if there was something unleashed by Robert Johnson, who died at 27, and is packed with the devil at the crossroads, as legend claims, then maybe it still reaches out and touches a number of artists, because Robert Johnson also had his own personal demons. If you remember the story, he had... uh taken some whiskey and it had been mixed with strychnine and it took him three days to die on his hands and knees howling like a dog at the age of 27 and he became fascinating for artists like eric clapton and keith richards and jimmy page and i think the legend turned him on to the music so the one good thing is when you die at 27 you die at your peak and at 27 you become almost immortal it's almost like ancient greek When a great hero died, he became a a demigod. Well, we still turn on the radio, you're going to hear Jim Morrison loving her madly. And you're still going to hear all these artists. So they're trapped forever at the age of 27.
1: What's especially strange about it, though, is when you look at some of these accomplished musicians and what they were able to do uh, before they turned 27. I mean, I know by the the time I was 27, I'd started this program. I'd had my son and gotten married and started a writing career, but... Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, it pales in comparison to what some of these other people have done. It's almost like everything that they have to give, they give so much and so soon uh, that maybe it's just all that is sucked out of them by the business. And by the time they're twenty-seven, there's nothing left. Well, you
2: know, you may have a point there. I know that. Just think of the life, the experience they put in twenty-seven years, how they live life. You know, it reminds me, and I know, I know that you teach uh, language arts like I do in literature. And it reminds me of the Romantic poets, if you remember. You had, uh, well, you had Byron, who died at 35. You had Shelley, who drowned at 29. And you had Keats, who died at 25. And you compare those three writers, the Romantics, with William Wordsworth, who lived to be 80. But at the age of 40, Wordsworth really didn't create one other great poem. So he had 40 years of nothing. It just seems like in the case of Keats, when he found out he was dying, he had one year left because he was a doctor, he had tuberculosis. He, he knew that he had one year to write everything he had. When you read, When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be, you can see it. So he wrote everything out in that one year. He put it all on paper. And he wrote the five greatest odes in the history of the English language at the age of 25 because he, he knew he was dying. Rock stars who died at the age of 27 have had great accomplishments for whatever guided them, whatever creativity they had that fostered the light that burned. You know, obviously it burned them out. But you know the life that they lived in those 27 years is very significant compared to people who've yet to create a tenth of the work they did in those short years.
0: I, I do. That's actually point. That? one of the things that I was thinking about as we were talking uh, this afternoon, Gary, is that you know, I wonder if we then take a look at some of the other great music that's been made. How many artists changed dramatically after the age of 27? So they didn't necessarily die, but they became almost a mm-hmm. different person. You know, a lot of people's musical change, uh, musical b- beliefs and kind of their approach switches dramatically. I wonder how many of those we can look back and track it In their 27 well, I think years, would be they became something different.
2: Well, that would be an interesting thing to consider. I mean, I can think right now that Linda Ronstad changed completely. Of course, I don't think she was 27 when she made the change. But, you know, there are artists. It, you take something as far as you can take it, and then you set it down. Someone else takes it up, they take it further. And then what you do is you go back and you reconfirm. If you look at the Beatles, for instance, look at the change they did starting with Revolver, you know, Revolver, uh, Sergeant Peppers, and then they went back again. So... You know, being creative and being able to have the flexibility to make the change. A lot of artists usually stay trapped in the same genre. With You know, it's like Keith Richards said, you know, the songs of the Rolling Stones, man, we made a lot of money off three chords. But, you know, it was the hooks and the way it was presented that keeps it going. So there really wasn't a, a great deal of total change. But you're right, there's a lot of artists who make great change and they went on. I mean, didn't Mozart have 27 compositions when he died. Something like that. I mean always every time I see the number twenty seven in a piece of literature I hear about it, it just brings it back. But you're right, there were there were changes in artists' life and it'd be a good study to find out how old they were when those changes came about.
1: When you look at the list, and and I pulled up a list here online of some of the causes of death, and you mentioned it's not all drug overdoses. Right. Some of them are just really strange. I mean, uh, Les Harvey of Stone the Crows died by electrocution from Mm -hmm. a live microphone in his wet hands. uh, Yeah. And uh, on, on Halloween of 1968. Uh, we had Malcolm Hale from Spanky and our gang dying from carbon monoxide poisoning from a faulty mm-hmm. space heater. I, if, if you want to say, you know, okay, you can only do drugs and, and, and drink alcohol for so long before it takes its toll, and 27 mm-hmm. might just be a, a coincidental number, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But when you look at this, it just it makes me go back to that Robert Johnson curse, uh, how many different ways, and it's almost like it's, they're especially dastardly, especially uh, e- in some ways almost an evil overtone to the way that they die
2: would like or exactly like a fluke you know my gosh who would do this you know uh how would that happen it's almost like watching the movie final destination
1: Mm, exactly (laughs) yeah
2: it's going to happen it's going to happen in a unique way but you're right i mean being electrocuted on stage things like that I mean, it wasn't all brought about by excess of course you know what does blake say the road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom in some cases, I guess it doesn't catch on to the wisdom, you know, as far as excess goes. And I guess, you know, you may be trapped as a child because if you're a fabulous artist, you're going to be babied all the way up, you know. You're going to be told you're the greatest. You're going to be put out on the road. And, and you know, playing those performances and riding in small planes and taking buses, I mean, those would really increase the likelihood of an accident as opposed to, you know, just being a normal lifestyle. So I can understand the argument that, you know, well, it's a coincidence based upon their lifestyle. I can understand that, but if as you look at it, you know, you say, my gosh, this is almost out of a Stephen King novel, you know, how they died.
1: Is there some possibility maybe that uh, as we've talked about this 27 Club and it's, it's become more prominent uh, in our discussion of the history and the myths and curses of rock and roll, that maybe it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of these artists as they reach their 27th age?
2: I know a lot of them have uh, a lot of anxiety when they reach 27. I know that John Mayer was interviewed in a BMI writer's magazine, and one of the questions they asked him, they said, "What what do you consider your greatest accomplishment? And he looked and he said, well, I made it past 27. So... If you're an artist, I think it weighs on the back of your mind. So my advice is when you turn 27, stay home, take a year off, stay out of the bathtub with your electric guitar, <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't take anything stronger than a bare aspirin, and uh, maybe you'll make it to 28. It beat the curse.
1: Are there any other, uh, you know, similar ages where where this has happened, where we can look at a number of artists? I I can't think of any, you know, that they kind of, I mean, we know, like, uh, around the age of 40, we've lost Elvis, we've lost John Lennon. uh, But I I don't think there's any other number that stands out in my mind where there's maybe two or three artists who have died at the same age. Yeah,
2: just a few, but nothing like 27. I mean, at first I thought, well, let's look at 33, because, you know, three times three would be nine. I Bon Scott was 33, and you can find a few other artists, but, you know, that would be really coincidental. And, you know, I know a lot of people are going to look at this and are going to say, wow, this is going to be coincidental. So I'll make a prophecy for you. Uh, I noticed that when Amy died, that it's on the web. They talk about the, the club, Curse of 27, and somebody's going to notice, yeah, but look at her last name, Winehouse. It has nine letters, Okay. And then they're going to say that if you look at her mother's name, her mother's name was Janice, but she spelled it J-A-N-I-S. And that's a very unusual spelling because it's the same spelling that Janice Joplin used in her name. And, of course, Joplin was a a troubled individual, too, who was much like Amy Winehouse. And then uh, Amy's best friend was in a television show in England called Big Brother. Well, what was Janice Joplin's backing band, Big Brother, and the holding company. So do you have all these strange parallels? Is that a coincidence, or is it, you know, some sort of idea that sort of God has a sense of humor and he wonders if we catch on? But, you know, the whole thing is it's just really strange. And and I know that when I do Coast to Coast with George Norrie, we talk about the word coincidence. Well, maybe the best definition of a coincidence is an explanation waiting to happen.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, when you look at all these Varieties of factors. I mean, if you're Amy Winehouse, you you've got to kind of smack yourself in the face as you get closer to 27 and say, "I can't live my life this way. I, I can't." There are all these maybe coincidences, but maybe signs. You know, maybe mm-hmm. uh, I should really get myself. In, and it seemed like every attempt that she made to do that, you know, we always heard that she was going to rehab and she was going to clean herself up, and it never seemed to take. You would think with that staring you in the face, unless you wanted it to happen you'd fight it with uh, a tooth and
2: nail. Well, you know, what you just said was interesting because you said if you wanted it to happen, it's almost like a suicidal lifestyle. I know that she was greatly depressed with a breakup of her, her longtime boyfriend. And, you know, the depression that comes with that obviously leads to more experimentation with drugs, you know, try to escape the pain, the inward thing. And uh, so maybe that's what it is. I mean... You know, I I think that you can choose a lifestyle that can be destructive. And there are a number of artists that had that lifestyle and is living on the edge. And, you know, and then what does Neil Young say? You know, it's better to burn out than fade away.
1: Absolutely. And
2: And I would consider this burning out.
1: Well, I would say too. Uh, speaking speaking of Neil Young, uh, he's you know there's that that book that's out now by David Brown, uh, Fire and Rain, where they they look at the year 1970 and the effect that it had on music, and uh, that that was the year that Jimi Hendrix, of course, passed away. And they, they talk about Hendrix kind of on a downward spiral uh, in that year before he died on September 18th. And it, it seems like you know Amy Winehouse was probably following a similar path in that. We we saw the same thing with Kurt Cobain. Where you know, first he had the stomach problems, and he was Mm -hmm. taking himself off tour. Uh, So it's not like it should come as a really big surprise uh, when when you see them going through all of this. Uh, I just I can't believe that, although you know, managers, handlers, all the people that are there making their living off this person as an artist, you know, they they want them to keep going. They want everything to stay status quo. But the fact that family can't intervene enough, that family can't. Uh, supersede some of these—I don't want to say leeches—but some of these, you know, music industry people who are more invested in uh, the ongoing name than the actual person. Because I mean, look, look at Tupac Shakur's—you know—red label, his handlers, his manager—they probably made more money off of him dying than they did when he was alive.
2: Well, it's like Jimi Hendrix said. Uh, it's funny how people love the dead. Once you're dead, you're made for life. Well, who's made for life? Whoever owns the publishing to the artist. All right, if you look at Hendrix, when you look at him at Woodstock, the All the All White, all those performances, he was extremely depressed. And you know, he even walks off at the Isle of White and says, "Man, we just can't get it together," and just walks off the stage. Tuesday night, we've got on Pop Odyssey Radio, we're going to have a interview with Jamal Sultan who was percussionist with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock on the and also the Rainbow Bridge, and I'm going to have some interesting questions for him because, you know, I've always believed that Hendrix didn't die from asphyxiation. I I honestly believe that Jimi Hendrix was murdered, and, I mean, I have some strong reasoning behind it. I know that he wanted to leave his manager, Mike Jeffrey, and had already signed a deal with another manager, and if Jeffrey lost his cash cow, then he would be he would be ruined, especially after borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars from organized crime to build electric Ladyland Studios. If he didn't produce the money, then he would be killed. So when Hendricks died and Eric Burden goes on the radio and says that Hendricks just killed himself to take his way out, Jeffrey was furious because if Hendricks had committed suicide, the insurance policy he had either of $1 to $2 million wouldn't have paid. But we know that before Hendricks died, he had been kidnapped. He had been uh, rescued by Mike Jeffrey. a few days later. We know that when he went into Canada, that, some, that the, the border guards discovered heroin in his suitcase that Hendricks believed was planted by Mike Jeffrey and a message to tell him that he could get him anytime he wanted. Now, what makes me think it's murder, and I've always thought this, was that when Hendricks was taken to the hospital, the doctor says that wine was oozing out of his mouth and that he had a suction device to take the wine from his throat. But still, there was so much wine in his lungs that he was, you know, he, it looked like he had been drowned in wine. But when they did the blood test, there was very little alcohol in his bloodstream, which means that he was dead before the alcohol was able to go into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And now one of his group, one of his roadies had come forward and said that he heard Jeffrey confess that he had Hendricks take nine sleeping pills, or he had two of his henchmen come in, hold Hendricks down, giving nine sleeping pills to paralyze his throat so that he couldn't, you know, that he would not be able to throw up the wine and poured two large bottles of red wine down his throat into his lungs. And Hendrix's friends will tell you that he did not like red wine. And then the strange case with Monica Daneman, his girlfriend, who was the one who called the police in London, when she found his body, instead of calling 999, which is the emergency number in England, she called Eric Burden. The ambulance wasn't called for, like, 30 minutes. She said that Jimmy was alive when they put him in the ambulance and that he asphyxiated because the ambulance drivers didn't have his head positioned correctly. Well, that's all wrong. <laughs> And a lot of people did not know that the doctor and the ambulance drivers had never been interviewed. This was just Monica Dainaman's story. So you want to talk about a strange curse? When Hendrix died, uh, his main girlfriend, uh, let's see, Devon Wilson, who he wrote Dolly Dagger for, a few weeks later jumped off the top of the Chelsea Hotel in New York, committed suicide. Monica Daineman, the girl he was living with, takes a hose to the back of her muffler, and runs it into the car to fixate herself in carbon monoxide. Noel Redding, when he died, always believed Hendricks had been murdered. Now, Mike Jeffrey, Mike Jeffrey was coming back from Spain to answer questions in England, and the plane blew up. Jeffrey's body was never found. Jeffrey used to work for MI6. <laughs> there are people well, who believe that he had actually put the, his luggage on the plane and didn't board it, blew the plane up to give him the perfect cover so he wouldn't be arrested. So you talk about a strange story when you brought up Jimi Hendrix, had to bring that up, because we're going to find out that he did not asphyxiate as the story goes, and it was murder. So we'll see if they reopen it, but it's a strange story.
1: Uh, absolutely, it is. And, and there are so many strange stories associated with uh, so much of the 27 Club. And uh, if you can stay with us for a little bit longer, Gary, we do have to take a break for the news. Uh, we're required to run the network news of about a five-minute break. But if you can stay with us for a little while longer, I'd like to talk to you uh, some more about some of these people in the 27 okay, it'd Club. Okay, be great. Sure. All right. And, of course, you'll be on Coast to Coast a little bit later on, on uh, many of the, the stations uh, around the country and around the world, talking, uh, I assume, with uh, Ian Punnett.
2: That's right. Ian's a good guy. He we'll is. we there, too.
1: All right, so uh, we'll take a break for the news. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk more with Gary Patterson. We'll have Chris Balzano with us uh, for some more questions. We'll also have the phone lines open, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew, at com, And if you want to text in a question, you can do so at 508 444 2661. So a lot of different numbers to remember. I feel almost like George Norrie having to announce all these different <laughs> phone numbers here. But uh, there are all those ways to get a hold of us and, and we'll continue the discussion coming up. So uh, again, if you have any questions, 508 996 500 996 1420 or you can text them in at 508-444-2661 We'll take a break for the news. When we come back we'll talk more about the 27 Club, the death of Amy Winehouse uh, again, she was found today in her London apartment, dead at the age of 27. She's now part of the infamous Forever 27 Club. And uh, we'll talk more about that with our guest, our Gary Patterson, coming up in just a few minutes. Everything is, as it was. That's right, boys. Spooky South Coast is burned. I hate this. I like to torture
0: I'm afraid.
1: All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with, well, Chris Balzano, our content director, is here with me because uh, both Matt Costa and Matt Moniz are not here. Chris, you're still with us? Oh, hang on. How about now, Chris? Oh, Yeah. Okay. And our special guest tonight is our Gary Patterson. Uh, you know him from his works, uh, such as The Walrus Was Paul, Hellhounds on Their Trail, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. Uh, we're talking tonight about the 27 Club. Amy Winehouse, unfortunately, is the latest member. Uh, Gary, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Pop Odyssey Radio, because that's something that you started since the last time we had you on your program. Uh, how's that going?
2: Oh, it's going well. Have a great, uh, have a great time. Uh, If you'd like to listen in, it's on every Tuesday and Thursday night, and on the Eastern Time Zone, it'll start at, it'll go from 9 p.m. until 11 p.m., and we try to bring on a lot of guests in pop culture, a lot of rock artists. We've got Jamil Sultan, who's going to be on Tuesday night, who was with Hendrix, and I want to try to get some of the great stories about Jimi Hendrix out on this, and I mean, he was with him, especially, he was playing in his band, he's... On a number of recordings and we've had a lot of fun and we have some of the paranormal too my partner's name is steve wren and also a partner christian dion who's probably one of the greatest psychics i've ever met he actually predicted uh that amy winehouse would pass away several months ago and made the prediction and i thought well you know i can sort of see how you would think that she would be the next one in the club, you know, because of the lifestyle, like Keith Richards. But, you know, they've had Keith Richards on a death watch for five years, and he's still going strong. So, But still, you know, it's, it's, it's been fun for us. And right now I'm working on a couple of television things I hope take off. I've got a producer from HBO talking to me. So hopefully you'll see me back on television before too long.
1: Oh, that would be excellent. Uh, one thing that uh, I've, I was thinking about during the news break is, you know, now that Amy Winehouse has joined this 27 Club, I can't really think of somebody else who we have to be concerned with, who we can consider as on that path. I mean, a lot of the younger artists of today, uh, they seem to more or less have maybe learned the lesson, or maybe it's a different culture and they're not drawn toward uh, a lot of those um, excesses that uh, that others have been caught up in.
2: Yeah, well, I agree with that. And, you know, like I said before, you know, the, uh, the road to excess leads to the Palace of Wisdom. Maybe not necessarily in the person who demons took his life or her life. But maybe from other artists who said, this is not how I'm going to end up. The way I got the title for the club or the 27 Club was when Kurt Cobain died, his mother in a Time Magazine article said, now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club, and that made me think, wow, you know, the club, 27, membership, age 27, and instant death, but instant immortality and fame. You know, the sad thing is there's a lot of artists who would say, hey, if I die young, then, you know, I'll be a legend. Remember the who? Uh, I hope I die before I get old. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I guess two of them are still here you know, who are old and they didn't pass away, you know, with towns and adultery. But but it it was that sort of that mindset, James Dean, you know, the cool image of rock and roll. Live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. The whole thing. So, you know, I guess it's what you what you want to risk. Instant immortality or an artist who gets so old and outdated they doesn't matter. But, you know, when you die young, your music's always going to be Going to be going strong, and the main question is, what would he be doing if he had lived? I mean, how many you times mentioned you mentioned earlier, with about, you know, that, 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 that
0: so many of the artists that we look to, whether they're musicians or or, or uh, writers or, or artists, um, you know, they create what they create. That's the greatest, and that's most kind of with us after they die when they're young. You know, and every year that (laughs) you know, every year that I get older, I have to check off the the people who have accomplished more than I have by my age. You know, but it's it's true that you know the list of people who um, started becoming or started producing great things after the age of thirty is short, and the people who continuously created great things after the age thirty, age forty, age fifty, you know, gets less and less each time. So there is something romantic in an artist's soul about you know you create the greatest things when you're
2: young well that's true i mean exactly like we talked about the romantic poets i mean it goes into the whole thing with that you know to to create your greatest element when you're young i know wordsworth said that a poet really couldn't be a great poet if he hadn't done a great work by the age of 21 you know and so i mean the idea of of the power of youth and the power of that expression does play a role in it, you know, I do know that. But you know, we talk about learning, you know, from excess. You gotta remember that sometimes your membership in the club doesn't have to come from a drug overdose. It could come from some bizarre accident that we talked about. So, you know, there's no one today that I can look at and say, Yep, this person's destined for membership. I always had that strange, uncomfortable feeling with Amy Winehouse though. And I remember when we did the thing with E when I saw that they'd put her on the list and they said she'd better be careful. You know, at that point, you know, it was just like watching a car wreck. I always hoped that, you know, she would have uh, the strength or the, or the I don't know, I guess the determination to get her career going and beat it, and that's what makes it a tragedy. But, you know, personally, I hope there's never another member of the club,
1: you know. And, well, absolutely.
2: You know, that's what I hope. Sadly, I know that that's not going to be the case. And I know that when someone passes away and they're 27, people say, well, you know, that's just a great, that's just a strong coincidence. But sometimes I wonder, you know, when you see a list of 43 names and and when Amy Winehouse died, the first thing I said was she was 27. Every time I hear that, it's just like a cold chill, you know, (laughs) like a ghost story, you know, and I know that there's been another initiation into the club.
1: Well, not not to uh, make you feel morbid here or anything, Gary, but when I saw, I was watching music videos on, on uh, one of the music channels, and I saw the breaking news scroll come down at the bottom of the screen. It said Amy Winehouse dead at the age of 27. As soon as I saw that 27, my first thought was of you. <laughs> yeah. And I immediately texted Chris and said, you know, do you think we can try to get Gary on the show tonight? Because, you know, we have to talk about this. But uh, unfortunately, you've become the, the face of the 27 Club, which you probably yeah. didn't want to have happen.
2: No, I mean I thought it was a cool story, and I thought it was just you know just something that you'd say, oh my gosh, you know that maybe there's something to this. Uh, great urban legend, a great myth, and I guess I have become the face of it. But you know it's just, you know I don't know. It's just uh, it's just such a tragedy, and like I said, to die young is a double tragedy because then the rest of your life is what might have been. You know if she was 27. What would she do? But you know we talked about the money being made off this. Okay, how many artists who died at the age of 27 are still having releases? You know, uh, Jamie Hendrix's sister said that they could turn out album after album for six, seven years of all the stuff that's in the studio. So no wonder someone hears Tupac and they say he's got to be alive because this album just came out. Or Hendrix, Valley of Neptune, you know, he's got to be, you know, listen to this. This stuff's still coming out. So, you know, there's so much recording that's been kept Locked away in the studios, owned by labels, and they're just waiting for the right time to release it. So I guess in that way, you can die at twenty-seven and be dead for ten years and still make the record company lots of money.
1: Absolutely, it, they still have that uh, that cash cow there, uh, because I think when a lot of these artists, you know, subconsciously feel they might be joining that club, they're in there cranking it out a la Tupac. You know, he he recorded more in the last. I think they said he was in the studio like nonstop the last year and a half of his life. Uh, because he kind of had a sense that his time was going to be short. Uh, yeah,
2: re- you remember his video, I Ain't Mad At You?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And, you know, he, he goes into rock and roll heaven, you know, <laughs> at the end of it. The gangland shooting thing. I mean, sometimes you have these airy premonitions, I guess. You know, I just remember that when Buddy Holly died, his last song was called, uh, I Guess It Doesn't Matter Anymore. And, you know, I guess, well, you know, that's that's kind of strange, you know. And, uh take a look at Biggie Smalls and Tupac, their albums also had sinister ideas of maybe they knew what was happening, but, you know, as long as product can be put out, and it's good for fans, I mean, Jimi Hendrix died in 1970 in September of 1970, and he's got Valley of Neptunes that comes out, so you get to still hear the incredible talent of an artist that you can... Say, well this is this is something i haven't heard it's not like a complete re-release of all the greatest hits it's always something cool to listen to so I, I guess in that way it's good but i think a lot of people like with the tupac thing you know i remember tupac is alive went through all that for a while and uh see tupac is alive paul is dead and elvis is alive so it gets to be complicated but it's all about the music
1: well, I want to thank Elvis for that whopper he made me the other day. It was awesome. <laughs> but uh, w- w- one of the, the the artists that I've always had a strange feeling in my stomach about, you know, you look at a guy like Elvis, a guy like Jim Morrison. You know, these, these guys, if they were still around, we probably would have heard something from them by now. Uh, you would have to think somebody would have spilled the beans. Uh, even, even an Andy Kaufman by now, we would have heard something for sure. <laughs> But one person that's always kind of stuck out in my mind a little bit is is Kurt Cobain. Uh not faking his his death, but just the circumstances that have been reported to us. I I don't I don't really buy the whole story. I think there's more to it than that because if you remember uh just prior to uh you know a few months before his suicide, I think it was in September of the year before, uh he was hospitalized in Rome with stomach pains. And this right. was, this was something that we heard frequently that he was undergoing stomach pains and therefore he was unable to perform and you know they canceled some shows and uh I, I started to wonder myself if maybe he was suffering from some kind of stomach cancer which is anybody that's gone through it will tell you it's it's one of the most pain painful ways that you can die and and then it's just it's utter just destruction of your entire body, and I wonder if maybe he knew that that was if that was maybe a medical diagnosis, and and he decided to just uh, you know take care of things himself ahead of that ahead of that.
0: Well, of course, Tim uh, heroin has that same <laughs> that's true too. <laughs> that impact on your stomach, so
1: that's true too.
2: Well, I know Ian Halpern, and he wrote the book Who Killed Kurt Cobain, mm-hmm. and we've had some interesting shows on that. I do know about the stomach issue that he had, and you know sometimes a lot of artists can plan their own exit, you know? And it's like Neil Young, you know, like we talked about. It's better to burn out than fade away. But, you know, there's so many strange things with the death of Kurt Cobain, with the death of Brian Jones, with the death of Jimi Hendrix. And conspiracies are always going to exist unless everyone is convinced that, you know, it's been a fair evaluation. And, you know, there's so many questions about Kurt Cobain's death. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing it reinvestigated. You know, it, at least you can answer the questions. And the idea that there were no fingerprints on the shotgun, you know, that's that's kind of concerning. The other thing is, Kurt Cobain was not very tall, and how could he lie on the floor and take a shotgun and put it in his mouth and pull the trigger with his with his finger? Most people who commit suicide with a shotgun use their thumb. And then the case of his credit card, uh, when. His body was found, I think he was in the, uh, in the room for like two, three days before they found his body, and his credit card had been taken and was used. And as soon as they announced his death, someone stopped using the credit card. And, you know, whatever happened in Seattle for about a year or a year after that, there were a number of artists who died strange deaths, like Christian Pfaff from Hull, who died of a heroin overdose, even though her boyfriend, who was with her at the time, said that she had never used the drug. But yet, you know, she died there, and she was worried about Kurt Kurt Cobain's death. So, you know, until we get an investigation, and and it it covers all this, it's almost like uh, you may not remember this, but when Oswald killed Kennedy, there was some misinformation on the autopsy form, like his eyes were a different color, all of this. And it took a number of years before they actually dug up uh, Oswald's body to see, well, let's see if it's true. The same thing with Zachary Taylor. A rumor went around that Henry Clay had poisoned him. So hundreds of years after his death, Zachary Taylor was brought up, reexamined, and they found a small trace of arsenic in his hair. But they said that was probably common from the, from the uh, medicines at the time. And now I think they're doing what, uh, Clark, from Lewis and Clark ex- Expedition, that he may have been murdered. They did uh, Kingfish's murderer, Carl Weiss, in uh, Louisiana. And now they're digging these people up who've been dead hundred a year, hundred years or more, trying to find out what the truth is. So who knows? Maybe they'll look again at Kurt Cobain and and Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix and a, a few others to see what the truth is.
1: Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned uh, Kristen from Hole and, and Kurt Cobain because there is the interesting link between the two of them, mm-hmm. that being Courtney Love. And I don't think uh, we're breaking any new ground here to, to say that the finger has been pointed at her numerous times in the past because nobody benefited uh, from Kurt's passing more than Courtney Love in, in her own career did.
2: Well, what you'd have to do is take a look. First of all, there's a lot of people believe that Kurt Cobain wrote the first Hole album. And that, you know, he, he actually provided the music. And, uh, see, Billy Corbin did the second one, I believe. And after Kurt's death, it seems like Cole wasn't putting out any, oh, any outstanding music to make the band uh, a great legendary group. And the people who believe that Courtney may have had something to do with it, it always comes to the idea she must have been very lucky. Because if Kurt Cobain was divorcing her, I mean, on the suicide note, Ian Halpern and some of the experts who've looked at it say that there's actually two sets of handwriting. Well, let's investigate it. Let's find out if there is. But if Kurt Cobain had divorced Courtney, then she'd probably receive a few hundred thousand dollars. But if he died and she was married to him, then she would inherit all the royalties of all the songs he wrote for Nirvana, which would be millions and millions of dollars. So, I know Tom Grant, the detective who's looked into this, I know that he would say that, you know, that's probable cause, you know, to, to look into it because she would have so much to gain. Now, I'm not saying she had anything to do with it at all, but I'm saying that you're going to hear these rumors, so, you know, why not reinvestigate? You know, why, why let these things build up? And I, I mean, this Kurt Cobain thing will be going on for ten more years especially on the anniversary of his death. So, you know, you have believers. You have people who believe Elvis is alive. I mean, he fixed you a hamburger today, right? So, I mean, on Elvis's centennial birthday, his 100th birthday, people are going to be wondering when Elvis is going to appear. I mean, now there's even a rumor that, well, Elvis did fake his death, but he died in 1997, you know, 20 years later. And you talk about Jim Morrison. Hey, I've had phone calls from Oregon that Jim's living on a ranch up there and he's raising horses and you can buy videos from Jim Morrison showing how his face morphs back to the original Jim in the, in the early 70s and uh, you can buy it and then his movie goes in, or money goes into finance a film. I mean, I've talked to Gerald Pitts and you hear this and if you really want to have a, <clears throat> a strange story to show how significant it is, it's Elvis and Morrison seem to have more offspring more brothers, more sisters, more children who come forward claiming part of the legacy. I know at least three people who claim to be the sons of Jim Morrison. All right, One even has a band. and Trying to go before the Morrison estate, trying to have DNA tests proven. I know Jim's brother-in-law Alan Graham, he sort of fights against that. Of course, he got really duped once and actually had proclaimed that this guy was Jim Morrison's son and then found out it was all wrong. So, you know, it's easy to see this but i mean when you're a legend when you die young every time you turn on your radio and you hear them they're always with us and maybe that's the greatest thing to say if you even die at 27 and you become a member of the club the music is staying with us and the music will always well they'll always live through their music and their compositions
1: and like you said you know you you can be a great artist uh you know chugging along with these hits uh, in your 20s, and you might not even be hitting what might be your peak, you know, when when you realize uh, there's more to life than just partying and you can really get into some of the, uh, you know, the heavier things. I just imagine what a a guy like Jim Morrison would have been able to write in his 30s or a guy like Kurt Cobain would have written in his 30s. But instead, you know, they're forever frozen in time at that age. But they they do get that automatic, you know, push from – just a great artist to a legend i mean i'm sure those there, there's plenty of these people that were headed toward legendary status anyway but you know uh, how often is it that somebody like amy Winehouse would get put into the same uh comparisons as jimi hendrix kirk Cobain, jim morrison i mean I, I guess you know i could see a lot of Janis joplin comparisons for her um even if she had lived past 27 but instead you know it's kind of like you become part of that that uh special elite you know uh as uh, Stephen King wrote, you know, they got a hell of a band.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. You know, from rock and roll heaven. And uh, they've got one hell of a band. You know, we'll give the Righteous Brothers a little credit for that, too. Sure, yeah. But, you know, you're right. You know, and if you take a look at their pictures, I mean, how many portraits, how many pictures do you see their license from Jimi Hendrix and James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley when he was young? I mean, they're frozen in time. You know, the other thing is you'll never hear a bad song by them. You know, after they die, everything's a great hit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't see them fail. You know, I think the Beatles were afraid of that because when they started doing, uh, well, when they did Revolver and it changed everything more into psychedelic, when, when Sgt. Pepper came out, it was a complete, well, a complete shift in the Beatles. I don't know if they thought it would be successful. You know, maybe that's why the Paul is Dead Rumor started on Sgt. Pepper's, you know, really putting him in there with a bass drum and all that. Because, you know, the Beatles kept changing, evolving, and it actually destroyed them. Because after Sgt. Pepper, there was no way they could perform that on stage. They didn't have the technology. They couldn't bring in the orchestras. And that's when they went back to the White Album, and they went back to Abbey Road, which were fabulous albums. But I remember a Beatle fan monthly saying... The Beatles owe it to their fans to continuously keep breaking new ground. Well, who has taken music any further than the Beatles?
1: True. Well, you know? w- w- wasn't that decision with, with Sergeant Pepper, though? Didn't they want to try to experiment as much as they can? Uh, no, it, be- it did Because they, yeah. they, they had no plans to return to the stage? Or, or
2: Right. Well, they didn't want to play live. Because what happened in the Philippines, uh, where they snubbed the Marcus family, and the Filipino army came after them, and they had to run on the tarmac to get on the plane to leave. And uh, Alf McNeil, who was the road man- well, actually he was their chauffeur and helped with the road management, told me that they actually called out for Brian Epstein and Mal Evans to come out of the plane. And they thought they were going to be killed. So Mal turns to Alf and says, tell my wife I love her. And when they got off the plane, the uh, commander took their briefcase with all their money because they were paid in cash so when the plane finally took off and the beatles survived george turned to the other beatles and he said you know it's not fun being a Beatle anymore so they decided to put themselves in the studio and do that changing you know from a uh, revolver to sergeant peppers and of course magical mystery tour was songs left over from the Sgt. pepper sessions and you know then of course you had revolution nine which was an experiment by lennon being a very avant-garde But they went back to what they did best. And, you know, to me, I think Abbey Road's a fabulous album. I can hear Paul McCartney's side. I hear John Lennon's side. But, you know, they did go back. But I think that, you know, being that creative, no other band has matched them in creativity, even today. And, of course, as you know the story, what inspired Sgt. Pepper was the Beat boys with Pet Sounds. So, you know, you had two fabulous bands in the studio changing everything. Uh, and I mean, I still think of good vibrations, you know.
1: I was going to say, likewise, wasn't uh, Pet Sounds uh, inspired by Revolver?
2: I mean, they fed off each other. And I'm sure that Brian Wilson's breakdown, where he stayed in bed for a year and had his headphones on listening to Sgt. Peppers over and over again, wondering how he was going to top that, had, had some bad issues. But, you know, you had, and I can't remember another time in musical that we had that many changes. Now, if I could go back in time, you know, we talked about nineteen seventy. I would go back to sixty seven. I would go to Abbey Road Studios and this would be sometime around January sixty well, probably. probably not January, sometime around maybe April of sixty seven. And I would go into studio two and studio three because the Beatles were recording Sergeant Peppers in Studio Two and Pink Floyd was recording Piper at the Gates of Dawn in Studio 3, and wow. I was just wondering what they were hearing coming down the hallway from each other. <laughs>
1: a, little you know? of, uh, a little bit of a little bit of one-upmanship, maybe. Yeah,
2: you know, oh, let's use this sound. This is cool. Let's use this sound. And, I mean, I just thought that was great. You know, 67 was also Are You Experienced, you know, that album, Cream's first album. And uh, so... 67 was a pretty big year, too. But, you know, that would be a good time to visit, you know, if you could hear that. But sometimes, you know, being very creative uh, and putting out so much material can actually destroy the band. And I think that's what happened with the Beatles. I think that uh, that was one of the reasons they said we can't really push it any further. And, of course, Sergeant Pepper was was the trademark, but also... I think Abbey Road was actually the way to go out, even though "Let It Be," which had been recorded earlier, was released last.
1: Well, uh, a lot of artists, you know, they say that everybody has one good album in them, and whether or not it comes out, you know, it's not always the case. But uh, Chris, not to disparage one of one of your all-time favorites, but you look at somebody like Alanis Morissette, who came out of the gates with just a phenomenal first album, right. and, and was never able to really duplicate the success of that. Uh, I can only imagine what it must be like when you are doing that on a consistent basis, when every album seems to be as heralded as that first one was for her. Uh, the pressure to keep up with that it, it must make you realize that, hey, maybe I can't do it on my own. Maybe my own imagination isn't enough, and then so you reach for the bottle or you reach for you know whatever else you're going to try uh, to try to expand your mind beyond whatever limits you might feel that it has.
2: Well, you know, I think you've uh, put your finger on something because, you know, that's why a lot of the old blues players got into heroin. And, you know, that that's always been there. But if you also take a look at some of the great poets, how important was opium and laudanum? You know, I can think of Coleridge, I can think of Poe, and I know a lot of artists used that to uh, to create some sort of inspiration, as the Beatles would have done with uh, LSD when it first came out. So, you know, sometimes taking... Mm, I guess what you'd say illegal substances, whatever mm-hmm. to sort of spur your creativity would be something you do because of the pressure that would be involved. And you know, think about the industry today. If you have a great artist who comes out and they put out a first album, they really don't make any money off that first album because it has to pay the advance back to the record company. So the second album is just as important as the first one. And how many bands can you think of that only had one album?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, in in some of these cases, you know, a lot of these, um, some of these twenty-seven club members, and, and even just some other artists who die of, you know, similar problems at a different age, uh, some some of them bring those problems with them before they even make it, before they even have that disposable income, or they're surrounded by that culture, or they're surrounded by those you know vultures who are, you know, profiting off them. They're they're they come into this with that addiction because whether it be the way they grew up, a guy like Art Alexakis from Everclear, who, uh, you know, was a, a terrible drug addict, uh, until he cleaned himself up and then became famous later. Uh, right. it, it just seems like they're bringing as many problems into the studio to start off with as they are developing later on.
2: Well, you know, one of the great stories had to do with the recording of, uh, Layla, the Derek and Domino's album. I mean, there were stories of drugs in the studio, you know, that, uh, at that time, Clapton, Dwayne Allman, some of the other artists were using it. I mean, that's what Bobby Whitlock says, but Tom Dowd said that he didn't remember any drugs being used in the studio. But you know, you're right that artists sometimes, like Elvis, you know, you take pills to put you to sleep, you take pills to wake you up, you take pills to give you energy, and when all this stuff is put together, I think that it, it creates, well, it creates the problem itself that, you know, is going to lead to that destruction. You're right. Some people come in with it because they push themselves. They can't sleep. They've got to turn out something better. Uh, they've got to uh, make a hit. I remember, I don't know if you've ever heard of Spooner Oldham, who's one of the, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and Dan and, and Spooner, let's see. Uh, I just remember that they wrote so many great songs, like Cry Like a Baby and all the others. And oh, yeah. they They didn't have a title, you know, and, they didn't have a song for the box tops, and they went to a, a greasy restaurant, and Spooner Oldham laid his head down and said, "Man, I could just cry like a baby." And they said, "Oh, that's the song. That's the song." So they run into the studio and they record it. They start at two o'clock in the morning, and they get through with it by the time the box tops come. And you know, here it is. That's just a terrible, you know, idea of staying up all night trying—you having to write a a hit song. Now, how can you stay up all night long? You know, you're going to take you're going to take something to keep you up to make you creative to do it i think you're right i think a lot of that actually adds everything to it that can lead to that early death
1: well it's kind of like when i first found out uh you know earlier in my life my my dream was to be a performer on on saturday night live so i actually had a friend who was friendly with people on the cast and kind of told me some of the ins and outs of what went on down there and what I didn't realize, you know, you hear all these stories about the drug use and, and you start to wonder how can all these people have these problems and then you realize the lifestyle that they have to live with, with SNL, you know, they show up for work on, on Tuesday, they start writing and they basically live at 30 rock until you know the show's over saturday night and they're there 24 hours a day working on all this stuff to get it ready and it must be similar for artists you know once they they get ready to go into the studio to put something out some bands like to write in the studio some write outside the studio but however they work when they start to go through that creative process you know that they just must be constantly polluting themselves whether it be for creativity purposes or longevity purposes
2: well then you got to work with a producer and you've got to work with a sound engineer, and what you hear in your head may not be what the producer hears in his head, so you're going to have conflict, and, you know, to get along with somebody, and, you know, so it, it creates tension, so you're right. Same thing in the music studios as it would be with SNL.
1: And I know with, with a guy like The Edge, you know, he, he can never really get the sound that's in his head out onto the record because it seems like he's just more advanced than the, uh, than the equipment can keep up with.
2: Yeah. I mean, being able to get the sound in your head down is what makes you successful, which gives you that inner peace. Because, you know, you keep saying, well, I could have done that better. It's not how I hear it. Now I have to, comp. well, I'm compromising. I'm giving up on what I hear because studio time costs so much. You know, and record labels aren't as uh, forgiving about budgets as they used to be because, you know, it's very hard to, to sell product now know with uh, downloads and everything else so it would be much much more pressure to make it and i think that would probably give you know so bouts of depression more pills and put you on that downward spiral
1: you know we we might sound like a bunch of cranky music fans here when we say this but you know, music today is not the same as it was uh, especially in the late 60s early 70s uh, when a lot of these artists from the 27 club were around but it seems like uh In today's music business, because album sales are so pale in comparison to what they used to be, that uh, when when something works, the industry just seems to latch onto it and milk it dry. So there's not a lot of creativity being shown, as we saw in the 60s, 70s, uh, or even in the 90s. With all of this going on, I mean, it's hard to find an iconic figure that matches some of the legend of these members of the 27 Club. There's, there's very few artists today. I mean, you look at somebody like Lady Gaga, who might be the biggest music artist in the world right now, but then when you take a step back and look, you're like, wow, that's just a bunch of recycled 80s crap.
0: <laughs> that's interesting, because we were talking about this earlier off-air, is that you know, it's something maybe having to do with that, uh, that process, that these current musicians don't have as many stories. And therefore, there doesn't seem to be folklore that kind of develops around them, or these stories that kind of take on legendary status, because it's created in much more of a sterile environment, and it's really hard for them to, uh, for them to, or for, for us to look at them and for that kind of uh, uh, that kind of folklore and that kind of you know legend status, because these stories don't come out as much. For and and I don't know whether that's due to every little thing. Um, being automatically tweeted, so therefore there's nothing that builds and so these things can't develop. But there doesn't seem to be um, those great kind of stories that go beyond just the 27 Club, you know, things like, you know, the, the, the planes in the graveyards and, and things like that. that the brown M&Ms
1: good. and the brandy glass. We don't even get stories like that anymore. <laughs>
0: <If> <laughs> we don't. Hey, I actually did a little research while you guys were talking. I was listening, and there is a 44th member of the 27 Club which i think might be an intentional uh tip of the hat to you uh Gary and and that would be a uh, Charlie Pace, the, the uh bass player and songwriter for the band um Drive Shaft. Okay. Right.
1: <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Wow.
0: <laughs> well, you know the other way my mind works. So uh, I was just kind of checking in and the numbers work out that that he was 27 when he died. So Well,
1: there you go. Let's I get
0: see. The worst that they another. do, you have to imagine that that's probably somewhat intentional because they had to create a,
1: a birthday for him. Sure, yeah, yeah they, they probably created it around that. I, I wish I had you all, everybody that I could play <laughs> here in the studio. But, but that, you're exactly right, Chris. Though that wall is broken down, so we can't build up these mythological stories uh, about these artists. And just for the record, Gary, the Brown M and Ms. That was Van Halen, right?
2: Oh, I knew that. Yeah.
1: Okay, I, I, because you always hear the different stories, but I, I remember and when
2: Paul McCartney plays, you can't have any leather furniture.
1: Well, that's, yeah, I'm not surprised with that, knowing knowing his uh, his. Uh vegetarian vegan whatever he is mm-hmm. but uh i just remember like hearing so many different bands attributed to the brown m&ms that finally it wasn't until i read the actual contract writer on, yeah <laughs> on the smoking gun site and, and that must be great for you to go through and read some of that stuff i mean oh I, it's
2: funny it's good of course van halen just put the brown m&ms just to make sure to see if they'd actually read the contract sure
1: yeah and, least, i think the best band at it though going today is the foo fighters every one oh, of theirs is like a work of art
2: yeah i agree
1: And they're one of the the few bands, too. I was going to say, Dave Grohl's one of the few guys that gets it, that gets this era of music that we're talking about tonight and and tries to carry some of that through into today's modern world.
2: Yeah, well, you know, that's my favorite band. I love Foo Fighters. I think that one of the problems we have musically is that, well, I think that with the decline of regional radio, I mean, like right now, Clear Channel, You have executives in L.A. who make playlists for every station in the country, you know, the big ones, the big FM stations. So a lot of artists are excluded. And then in the early 60s, when the British Invasion everything happened, you had those small regional DJ who would take a local band, put them on the air, and break them. And then all of a sudden they'd be nationwide, and you'd bring this sound you know, that was in San Francisco to Atlanta, Georgia, or a sound in uh, Muscle Shells, Alabama, and make it worldwide because you had these kids who were great session players who played with Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin and the others, and they introduced it. I think today that may have something to do with it because it just seems like if a label now has an artist who's a 13-year-old girl singer, every, art, every label wants a 13-year-old girl singer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you take a look at originality and being creative, you know, the, the creative force will last forever. But the originator, well, the, you got the originator, and then you have the people who sort of copy. And, you know, the, the false version, they're going to die out. And when I listen to a lot of rock today, it seems like it's all in a, in a formula. And it all sounds the same. I mean, vocally, uh, sometimes musically. And there's, and there's some exceptions to the rule, but, you know, growing up in the British invasion, you never mixed up the Beatles, the, an- <clears throat> the animals, the yard birds, the Rolling Stones, Freddie, Freddie and the Dreamers, uh, Herman's Hermans, any of that stuff. None of that ever had anything to do with sounding like anybody else. And I think that's what made it fresh. But I think at that time it was a renaissance of sound, of new e- experimentation, the advent of the great guitar heroes, you know? And we still have great musicians, great songs, great bands today, but it's a lot harder to get that big break and to become a superstar
1: than it was
2: back then.
1: I say maybe the problem, too, is we don't have enough of those artists that are live fast, die young type of mentalities, so they're not taking the same chances. They're not uh, putting out the more experimental stuff. I mean, now it's like a band becomes established, goes through an experimental phase, maybe because they get bored with the process, lose fans, and then automatically go back to... That I mean, one of my favorite bands of all time is U2, and I I start to get aggravated sometimes that they don't take as many risks with the last few albums as they had in the in the '90s.
2: Yeah, well, that's true. Sometimes it's more complacent. Well, this will work, you know. Let's put it out. And you know, it's you know, it's, it's opposed to what the Beatles did because you know the Beatles were taking risk until they got to the Watt Album. So maybe it's something that happens. Maybe you just. Maybe your muse burns out after a while.
1: Well, it seems like you know with the with the passing today of Amy Winehouse, and although I'm still I'm searching the internet here, and I'm not seeing anything yet uh, about official cause of death, so I'm guessing that they're waiting for a toxicology report, mm-hmm. uh, which could take what up to a month, I think, right?
2: It could. I heard uh, I heard someone say that they're going to try. They may even have the results tomorrow, which would be unreal if they did that. But you know what the old saying is, you know. Uh, in England, when they find a mysterious death, they call it death by misadventure.
1: Mm. It sounds so, like this might have been the case.
2: Yeah. So it'll be another death by misadventure, and that means exactly what took Brian Jones and Jimi Hendrix and in their investigations in England, and that's the major phrase. So we'll see if it's death by misadventure.
1: And we'll be hearing, I'm sure, a lot more of her music lately, and I, I think uh, those that didn't appreciate uh, her artistry will... Uh, in the coming weeks as is, is it becomes a little bit more prevalent. But, I mean, I think right from the beginning, as soon as she came out, as soon as she had that hit, you know, rehab, uh, I think everybody kind of already dismissed her as being maybe, maybe the next member of this club, if not before. Mm-hmm. So now they'll be able to look at her in a different light, and no longer will it be, you know, the, the addict that just won't get clean, but it'll be the tortured soul uh, yeah. that was on the downward path.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I say, the only positive thing is the music's still with us.
1: Absolutely. So she will live on. Well, Gary, we're going to let you go so that you can get ready for Coast to Coast uh, with Ian Punnett. Uh, tell him that we said hello. Uh, we, I'll I, tell him. I'm such a huge fan of, of the way he handles that show, uh, and, and I love every episode that you're ever on, whether it's with George or, or with Ian, because it just seems like when when people start calling in and you start remembering all, all of this uh, stuff that we've been talking about here tonight, it just makes it all come back to you, and it just makes it all more real for a guy like me that was born in 78 you know to hear a lot of these stories it just it makes me appreciate the music that came before me more more than I ever thought I could
2: well that's great because I mean the story should live forever and it should introduce you to the artist and by introducing you to the artist you get to hear the music and you know it's that's the that's the best thing and Ian is great at it because Ian used to be a DJ and the fun thing about Ian is he really knows music and we've had some great times on the air and we've had some interesting calls. I know you like the Almond Brothers and uh
1: Oh yeah.
2: One <laughs> night I was oh, talking he's about, talking Rose about Hill me there.
1: Cemetery. Oh
2: well me too. <laughs> oh yeah, I love the Almonds and but one night we were talking about Rose Hill Cemetery and got this call from a guy named Forrest and he was really upset about this book on the Almond Brothers that had been written that was unauthorized. And I said, Look, ninety nine percent of all books in rock and roll are unauthorized because I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked with an artist wanting to do a book on his life, but they sort of sugarcoat everything. <laughs> I told him, I told the artist that, that I've worked with, I said, look, if you're going to write a book, if you want me to do the book, you're going to have to admit certain things happen. You don't have to go into detail, but you don't hide it. So anyway, he went on, and, and uh, we were in a break, and Ian asked me, he said, hey, you think I ought to ask him if he's still playing that red guitar? Because we believed that the guy who was calling us was none other than Forrest Dickie Betts. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we caught on. We knew who it was. And it was funny, you know. And then the next day, Ian called me and he said that uh, Dickie had been arrested because he had been intoxicated some sort of domestic assault, and I thought, oh, my God, that's because we were riveting, you know.
0: So anyway,
2: (laughs) uh, we've had some interesting calls. We could probably do a book on the strange calls on Coast to Coast, but it's fun.
1: I I remember I I had a chance to see Dickie Betts uh, a few years ago at the Cape Cod Melody Tent, which is a great in-the-round venue Mm -hmm. where, you know, you're never more than 20 feet from the stage. So I go in there, and and we were surprised, first of all, that Dickie Betts was actually opening for uh, Kenny Wayne Shepard which yep. I thought it was going to be the other way around, so we arrived yep. a little bit late. When we got there, just from Dickie and his band, and I think his son was in the band, and you could just smell <laughs> the, the weeks of riding around on a tour bus coming, coming from yep. the stage. Yep. But uh, it, it, was, it was a phenomenal show, and uh, it was just an experience to be able to sit there with my dad, who introduced me to their music. And mm-hmm. you know, and when we had you on the first time, we talked about the Allman Brothers and everything. You know, it's, I think it might be the only episode of our show he's ever listened to start to finish.
2: Well, hey, I love that. I know that. I will tell you. I'll make a confession. I, a lot of people ask me what were the greatest concerts I ever saw. The very first concert I ever saw was like 13 years old, and I saw the original Rolling Stones. That was the first concert wow. of my life. So I, I think I spent it wisely on that one. Uh, the second concert I saw was uh, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, Keith, <laughs> the Royal Guardsman, and Sam the Sham. Wait, oh, no, Tommy James and the Shondells. So I sort of took a step backwards into pop rock, but. One of the greatest concerts ever, besides seeing Pink Floyd, was the Almond Brothers, and uh, you're going to love the year because it was uh, the see, It was two or three days before Dwayne Almond's uh, overdose on opium. Wow! So it was at, at Tennessee Tech, where I went to school, and it was the original Almond Brothers. I mean, it was Barry Oakley, Dwayne Almond. Uh, the live at the Fillmore album was just due to be released. They mentioned they had a live album, and I mean they played for three straight hours, and it was the hottest ticket in Tennessee, is to get in there and see the Allman Brothers. But I've never heard a show that was as powerful or as fabulously put together with great guitar playing as that, and that's what that lives in my memory because I'll never forget that concert.
1: Well, as great as that concert must have been i can only imagine what it must be like to see the royal guardsmen where they just play snoopy songs for 45 minutes
2: <laughs> well you'd think so uh they didn't even have the backup you know they just had the original snoopy versus the red baron but actually what i thought was funny they played cover songs i remember they did friday on my mind and give me some Lovin'." oh wow and you know so they did songs that were real popular but you know the funny thing was they were really good Hmm. and the worst song they played during a concert, was Snoopy versus the Red Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else, you know, give me some love inside it, just like, you know, Stevie Winwood. And I was thinking, wow, these guys are good. So I guess it's a way, you know, that you gets top cast, because after they did that, their next song was, uh, you know, what was it?
1: The Return of Christmas.
2: the Red Baron? The Red, yeah, The Return of the Christmas Red Baron. Christmas Bells, and yeah. The Christmas Bells, all that. And so they got sort of top cast into it. But, you know, they weren't bad. I know that the first guy we saw was Keith. And he had one song called 98.6. But it's a great song. That. Yeah, that was his only song, I guess. And then Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs were, were pretty strong. But, of course, the headliners was Tommy James and the Shondells with, I think, We're Alone Now and Mirage and Hanky Panky and all of those. But that was a pretty good concert. But I guess, you know, at my age, I was probably 14. So I was there with well, a I lot of other 14-year-olds. That was my new share kids my on the own block brother's, uh,
0: my greatest own brother's memory for you guys. Really quickly, too, then, which we, I saw them nine straight years. I missed a decade, but I saw them nine straight years every summer. And one of the ones, but I think maybe the fourth or fifth one in, um, Dickie Betts wasn't currently on tour. He was replaced by Zach Wild because he was, at that time, oh, wow. on the run from the law for domestic abuse, and there was a warrant for his arrest. And so he kind of disappeared, and Zach Wilde played. So I actually did see the All Brothers once with, with uh, Ozzy Osbourne's guitarist instead right. of uh, Dickie Betts. And it was actually amazing.
1: Huh. Wow. wow. That's that's not only is that incredible, but it's incredible looking at Dickie Betts to think that there's a woman that he could beat up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a skinny scrawny dude.
2: Yeah, Bonnie Bramlett told me that uh she was singing back up with him one time and she reached over and grabbed him from behind and lifted him up off the ground and he got furious. And uh, she said, I didn't know he had that bitch of a temper, you know, I guess he does, but you know, wow. I saw the almond Brothers another time, uh, and they <laughs> BG, they opened for BJ Thomas. Really that's a strange concert. That yeah.
1: definitely is. Oh man, uh, BJ Thomas. I mean, uh, I'm I'm a big hooked on a feeling fan, but I I, I can't imagine that I'd <laughs> I'd be sticking around uh, after the almond Brothers to, to wait well, for to hear true. that. Well, that's true. The
2: place emptied out very quickly.
1: At least know? maybe if it was the Blue Swede version, you know, and I got the Uga in there too.
2: Yeah, maybe that was it, but. You know that was that was a, a decade of what defined Southern Rock, which inspired, of course, Leonard Skinner and the Outlaws and Molly Hatchet and some of the others. I will tell you quickly before we get off. One other thing I'm doing. I'm working in royalty tracking with John Hitchborn, and we're finding artists who've not been paid what they should have been paid for their hits. So if you know anyone who is an artist from the '60s, '70s, even current. Uh, they need to get in touch with us and we'll get their money. Uh, we just represented a member of the association and John found him $40,000 in about three weeks. That's not bad.
1: Another great couple of, couple of hits from them too. Uh, well, if anything comes through for, uh, Tim Weisberg, the flute player, you could just send it to me. I mean, I know it's the same name, but, you know, it's, uh, it's... (laughs) I'm sure there's a check out there for 75 cents for uh, Twin Sons of a Different Mother or something. It could be, and would
2: be something like that. that. Just make sure you have a contract it, with your so. name on it. Is it in the band and not just hired?
1: The the best thing he ever did was putting out that album, Tip of the Weisberg because that gets me a lot of play, i got to say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right gary well, it's been great talking to you uh, and people can go to your website rgarypatterson.com as well as uh pop and they can switch over to coast to coast coming up in just a few minutes and here with ian punnett thanks so much for joining us and talking about the 27 club and hopefully it won't be so long before we have you back again
2: hey guys i had a great time thanks for having me
1: all right thank you have a good night all
2: right you too bye-bye
1: and uh chris thank you for joining us uh, what's on tap for next week
0: uh, we have the writer, uh, his name is uh, escape Me Right Now, I probably should have looked it up knowing this was coming, but he wrote the book, the, help me out with this, Tim, the, uh, the, 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 the one from Beetlejuice.
1: Oh, the the Handbook for the Recently Diseased. Uh, deceased.
0: deceased, yes, this is the <laughs> Handbook for the Recently Haunted, so it's a totally different approach, it's, uh, it's a book for people who are suffering hauntings as opposed to people who investigate them, so...
1: And and uh,
0: Check out the for uh, for for more information, but it's a really interesting book.
1: And I'm not sure the Red Sox schedule. Uh, I think they're playing a seven o'clock game next week, uh, so we'll be here uh, immediately after the game. And you know, it's so much easier to go longer when the guys aren't here. I only have to convince okay. myself.
0: And I can completely tell you that you know we don't have to stop next week's show because he's going to be on Coast to Coast. I think this is a this is a one of uh, maybe actually three times in the past year that we've uh, we've scooped them on a guest. So.
1: It's because uh, we have a great content director who knows what he's doing.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're the one who suggested it, my brother. So you gave me the courage to call him. And i, and I got to tell you, honestly, I was freaked out talking to him because I was like, this is a man on my mouth i more. And, I'm, yeah, and the, he is out?
1: one of the best. So, so are you. You know,
0: what? you know what? Honestly, and you get the feeling every time you talk that, he could have talked for another four hours with you if he wasn't going on, and I wouldn't have been bored one moment.
1: Absolutely. All right, well, we got to go. So until next week, for Chris Balzano, for myself, we want you all to stay pooptacular.